we need to make the argument for making good on the original promise of these technologies, which was a virtual town square, uh, a virtual library of, of, of human knowledge. Um, those were good ideas. They didn't have a business model. Um, and when things don't have a business model but are good ideas, we say they're public goods. <laughs> Hi, I'm Taylor Owen, and this is Big Tech. There aren't many Canadians who are more intellectually and politically influential than Naomi Klein. After writing her first book, No Logo, in 1999, Naomi became and has remained one of the most prominent and smartest progressive voices in the world. Her books, No Logo, The Shock Doctrine, and How to Change Everything, have been global bestsellers. And she is currently the Gloria Steinem Chair in Media, Culture, and Feminist Studies at Rutgers University. Over the past 20 years, Naomi has sounded the alarm on a wide range of important issues. The unchecked power of corporations, the increasing precariousness of work, and the damage that capitalism is causing to the planet and to the people who occupy it. And in recent years, she has begun to focus on big tech and the new set of corporations that have only made these issues more clear and the need for solutions that much more pressing. Our interview had everything you'd expect from a conversation with Naomi Klein. She provided sharp and thoughtful criticism of corporate power and didn't pull any punches. But what I wasn't expecting is that we would also connect as parents and talk about our struggles with raising kids in a hyper-connected world. We're both intimately familiar with the perils of technology, but we've also ended up with boys about the same age who are obsessed with YouTube. It can be easy to see these issues as black and white, but they're not. They're complicated and messy and nuanced. And I'm glad I had the chance to explore that messiness with Naomi Klein. So you, uh, you absolutely won't remember this, but our paths have crossed once in Quebec City. <laughs> I kind of knew you were going to say that for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe so I did know that. I'll tell you the story because it's for me, it was crazy. It was, I was there, I was an undergrad, mm-hmm. and there was this kind of moment of tear gas. And I ran around a corner into a, the lobby of a building okay. to get away from tear gas. Uh-huh. And you were standing there with a documentary crew. I remember this really well. Yeah. And a French a French activist of some sort, an older man and Avi. Yeah. And I kind of stood there with you and yeah, watched this I'm documentary. Like, I totally and I like super awkwardly introduced myself because I was like infatuated with you. That's so funny. Okay. I, I really remember that moment. I think partly because it is documented and it was really weird. And I had like um, goggles. And yeah. You did. I had ski goggles on for the tear <laughs> gas. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. That was you. Okay. That's really funny. I realized that like you, I couldn't believe you were only 29 or 30 then. Like, mm-hmm. I was 10 years younger, but man, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. It's amazing. You're in the middle of all that. At that stage. <laughs> Anyways. You know, the kids these days, they're doing it in high school now. So <laughs> I guess so. I guess that's right. Middle school. <laughs> yeah. You're middle age by comparison. Exactly. That's not um, impressive. You're over yeah. there. <laughs> uh, all right, so let's dive in. So what I wanted to do, just to give you a sense of how I wanted to structure this, is I've just seen more and more of you writing about technology, and it's kind of caught my eye. 
And I was hoping to kind of go through some of your previous work and see to what degree they, some of those ideas apply to the current moment we're in mm-hmm. with tech, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, sure. Sounds um, interesting. Okay. <laughs> um, so I want to start with seeing if we can connect some of the ideas from No Logo to this current moment we are in the middle of, where our worlds are shaped in many cases by a new set of corporations. And it strikes me that many of the concerns you talked about, the precarity of work, um, the pervasiveness of brands, the risks of market concentration, um, are all things that have been sort of supercharged at the moment. Um, And they were kind of embodied in the structure of big tech companies. So I'm just wondering if you look at things like Facebook and Google as modern versions of Coke and McDonald's, or how do you view them as corporate entities in comparison to the ones you were concerned about 20 years ago? Hmm. I think, I mean, one of the things that I think is striking is when I wrote No Logo, um, I was tracking the rise of this idea of the lifestyle brand, of of the brand that was not selling, it didn't see itself as selling primarily a a commodity-based product, but rather an idea, transcendent idea, that could be grafted onto any number of products. So that was this sort of a new 90s idea, right? Right. Um, so, So distinguished from we have a product and we're going to advertise it with aspirational lifestyle ideas, like mm-hmm. here's a car and look at where you could drive and look mm-hmm. at how happy you could be. That's a more traditional, you know, slap a brand on a product and and market it model. Yeah. And then what happens in the 90s is all these companies like Nike and Starbucks or Disney, where it was like, okay, well, we are over products. Um, anybody can make a product. Um, and this is intimately linked with free trade and globalization of the supply chain and and all of that. And it's like, um, well, you are, you know, as as Tom Peters, the management guru of the time said, you're a fool if you own it. Um, (laughs) And anybody can make a product, but not anybody can come up with an idea that is so um, powerful that people want to live inside it, right? Mm. So Nike pioneers this. They never actually owned their factories. Mm. This is an idea we take for granted now, but in the 90s, it was like, what? You don't own your own factories? Like Adidas owned its all of its factories. Mm. Reebok owned all of its factories. Um, so Nike comes along and it's like, no, we're not, we're not a sneaker company. We are about the idea of transcendence through sports, and we can graft that idea onto basically every product in the world. And you're going to want to crawl inside and live inside this product. Mm. And so so what I was tracking in No Logo was like, what does that business model, this relatively new business model, mean to the kind of work that is available, right? Because if you if you devalue the commodity so much, then, it, then, then you also devalue the workers who make that commodity and you hypervalue the acts of marketing and, yeah. and, 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 and um, and you're also always looking for cultural space to co-opt mm. and co-brand with, right? Mm. So um, as I was writing No Logo in, in this period in the 90s, like we started to see the emergence of the first people who saw themselves as super brands, right? Mm. This, this, this phrase was, was coined like the, by, by, by Michael Jordan, um, who, was, who his agent called him the first super brand. Um, 
But, you know, Oprah was also a super brand and she was starting a magazine where she was on the cover every single month, you know, which is like, that's an interesting idea, you know, for a magazine. The sense of self Um, is significant. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I ended the book quoting this piece that ran in in Fast Company in 1997, um, the brand called You, where the cover of Fast Company was a box of Tide. And Peters was saying, hey, it's not just Oprah and 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 Michael Jordan who can be super brands. Everybody can be a brand. Everybody mm-hmm. can be a brand. In fact, everybody has to be a brand because I've given all this advice to corporations telling them that they, they should lay off their entire staff. So, um, you know, none of you have jobs. You better be brands, right? And so, I mean, it was interesting because the last line of the piece was like, or else. Like, be a brand or else. It was a threat. It wasn't a promise, you know. So – When I wrote No Logo, more than 20 years ago now, um, this idea was just kind of a joke, right? Because, of course, a non-celebrity person couldn't be a brand. Mm. Because a non-celebrity person doesn't have an advertising budget, you know? So Tom Peters, um, you know, in in this, you know, landmark piece, he says, like, Here's how to build your own brand. And then he comes up with a bunch of absolutely ridiculous ideas, like, like, um, you know, volunteer to take the notes at a corporate meeting or write for your local newsletter, you know, your business newsletter or something like that. But things that are obviously not really going to build your own brand. It's just basically like how to be a self-promoter <laughs> within right. your own company and make all of your colleagues hate you. Um, because he, I mean, it, it obviously has relational approaches if you think about worker solidarity like if everybody is in this competition to build their own brands in the workplace then you're not going to be a very nice colleague which was some of the critiques of of the the peter's piece but 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 the bigger problem was just look if you're a celebrity you have a capacity to promote yourself you have like a multinational media company behind you mm. you have an agent you have mm. all these things but if you're just an individual no that's silly. You're not going to be your own brand. So 2005, actually, Fast Company runs a mea culpa and says, we were wrong. Like, this was a bad idea that we championed. Um, hmm. And it's failed. And so what? what's quite interesting is thinking about, okay, what happens after t- 2005? Yeah, have they done a mea culpa to their mea culpa? They should. Yeah. Because, in fact, they were just ahead of their time. Because, totally. yeah. because right after this, you know, they're on the cusp of the social media revolution. They, the iPhone is about to be introduced, so we're all going to have our ad agencies in our pockets. Um, and suddenly, um, the, the, the general public, anybody with, with a Facebook account, has the capacity to advertise themselves for free full-time. Um, and, and so I think companies like Facebook and, and Google are very different than, than – the, the, like, I think it's less – that they're selling a lifestyle and more that they are creating the capacity for this and for everybody really to be their own mini corporation, which has kind of shattering social solidarity uh, implications. So that that's what I th- I'm th- thinking a lot about. And that whole influencer economy started out fairly decentralized, but it's now becoming corporatized in some real ways. I mean, you're, you're seeing amalgamations of influencers and agencies purchasing right. influencers and right so it's oh, yeah. in some ways it's kind of emerging in its own corporate structure yeah i mean i'm just pausing cuz i'm not sure it ever wasn't i mean in i mean in the sense that i think that the 
thinking of yourself as an influencer was, I don't think that that's how people originally thought of themselves on Instagram. I think it was brands that came along and saw an opportunity, right? So branding is always a response to a kind of crisis of alienation within marketing, right? Where, where um, you know, the original brands, the, some of the first brands like Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben and all of these racist brands were responses to the alienation that came with mass production, right? So people were suddenly buying products that they used to buy from uh, from people who they had relationships with, so maybe a local farmer or a shopkeeper who would like scoop flour or rice, you know, out of a bag and you knew where it was coming from. Mm. And suddenly these same products were being packaged in factories and being put on trains and you didn't know where it was coming from. And there was a lot of fear about whether you could trust these products, right? And so the response was to slap a face on it, right? Um, that had this kind of comforting um, down home um, aura around it, right? And so that was like that, that, that's always been what branding has tried to resolve was mm-hmm. this kind of sense of alienation. And then the, the rise of celebrity brands, right? Like a celebrity spokespeople mm-hmm. was like, okay, the, it's actually, it's not just going to be like a logo of a face. It's going to be like an actual person who you have a relationship with. It's going to be Beyonce. It's going to be somebody, it's going to be Michael Jordan. It's going to be somebody who you aspire to be, who you think is amazing. Mm-hmm. But then that starts losing its intimacy, right? In the same way that those those corporate branded faces lose their intimacy. And then influencers are like, oh, I think brands started realizing people have much more um, intimate relationships with these people who they follow on Instagram. They feel like they know them. They've been allowed into their homes. Um, and 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 so an influencer is a way better uh, um, a surrogate for the, you know, a, 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 a way better at creating this sort of false sense of intimacy, which has always been what branding has tried to do, but it always kind of stalls out after a while, right? I wonder if another, it seems like another aspect of that moment and of your work at that moment was about resistance to this, these trends, not just identifying them, but how we as a society and as individuals might create different (laughs) realities um, and push back against it. And I'm wondering if there's something about the nature of our current set of corporate entities that make that even more difficult it's one thing to not go to to buy Nike shoes. It's mm-hmm. pretty different not to use an Amazon product or go to a website that's hosted on Amazon servers or to use a search engine. I mean, these things are much more embedded mm-hmm. in all, all areas of our society and economy. And is, yeah. is that a challenge for the resistance component of this? I think it is a huge challenge because it is infrastructure now. Um, It is infrastructure. And I, you know, I actually see that as a opportunity more than a challenge in Mm -hmm. the sense that um, the monopolistic power that these companies have amassed and Mm -hmm. the fact that they are now, they have been so aggressive in inserting themselves in core infrastructure. It's what, you know, Google set out to be the world's library. Mm -hmm. 
And that, you know, a library and access to information is something that we have collectively as a society thought that everybody had a right to. That's why, you know, go to, you know, most small towns and there, there'll be a post office and a, 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 and a library, right? And a general store. That's infrastructure. That's what we've said, you know, people need. And so if now the library is Google and the general store is Amazon, oh, and by the way, the school is also Google because increasingly, in, yeah. increasingly during yeah. the pandemic, we've seen tech companies um, like you use the pandemic as a backdoor to privatize um, kind of untouchable public mm. goods like yeah. education. Um, then uh, like I, I sort of feel like we have two options. We either throw up our hands and say there is no commons, mm. right? We have, we've allowed it all to be enclosed. We've allowed it all to be privatized yeah. or we start talking about some pretty radical ideas about nationalizing some of this infrastructure or treating it as a commons. And, you know, what I do in my courses, um, my, my students write a final essay um, called Six Degrees of Extraction, where they look at a tech platform of some kind or a, te or, or, or a tech product, uh, um, could be a video game, could be an app. And they look at, at at six separate ways in which this company has extracted um, uh, a f form of labor or collective resource, um, and and has not paid for it or, you know, dramatically underpaid for it, just expropriated it mm. in lots of cases, including their own labor, right? Like in terms that like all of the hope labor and unpaid labor that goes into, I mean, look, like we're all working for Twitter, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's quite radicalizing when you look at all these different sites of extraction. First, like, you know, we, we, we spend some time looking at the, the government research, the publicly funded research that forms the backbone of GPS-based apps, for instance, um, or, you know, your entire iPhone and uh, Mariana Mazzucato's research on that is incredibly helpful, right? Um, and and the natural, all the extraction of the natural world and, 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 you know, both in terms of the inputs, but also the outputs, right? In terms of the energy um, of Bitcoin and, and all these data centers. And so we go through it, one, you know, one by one. And it's like, wait a minute, maybe we already own them. <laughs> you know, it's, essentially, it's a case for expropriation. That's the way I see that I, I see this research. So, yeah, I think we either throw up our hands and say, yeah, we've lost it all. We've lost it all. And the, the most we can do is maybe break them up and have more competition. Or we say, no, <laughs> we we need a public square. And actually, all of these companies are built on radical uh, misrepresentation of their business models. Mm. They all talked about, you know, information wanting to be free and being the town square. And, you know, and I, this is where I think Shoshana Zuboff's work is really interesting, is that they were not transparent about what their business model was in some cases because they didn't know what their business model was for the first, yeah. you know, maybe seven years of their existence where they were they just... They didn't either. They didn't have one. I mean, well, their, their, their business model was established dominance in the right. field, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And they had deep-pocketed yeah. venture capitalists who let them do that, let them lose money um, for a very long time just so that they could squat over a sector. Mm. And then they developed a business model, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think these are pretty interesting times to think about this. And I think we should be as radical as possible because the implications of this are pretty outrageous. Yeah, and the, the, the labor component of it that you mentioned there seems to be something we're becoming increasingly aware of too, whether it be 
sort of ghost work and the ghost labor that goes on to it. Or, mm-hmm. And you've written a bit about this. You said that we have claims to be run on artificial intelligence, but it's actually held together by tens of millions of anonymous workers tucked away in data centers, content moderation mills, electronic sweatshops, on and on and on. I mean, we are building yeah. incredibly valuable services and products on top of labor, which, I mean, in some ways has parallels to previous industrial moments as well. And I'm, I'm wondering how you look at the rise of labor movements inside these companies right now. I mean, that seems to be one of the real, if we're talking about systemic change, that's yeah. one of the real drivers here is tech worker labor movements. Do you see that as a real opportunity? I do. Um uh, but I think it remains to be seen um, whether these companies are just so powerful that they'll be they'll succeed in ruthlessly crushing these nascent movements. Um, you know, if you look at the way Google has purged um, the 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 AI troublemakers um, and many of the people who organized the Google walkout are gone. Um, if you look at just the the ruthlessness with with which um, Amazon has crushed uh, um, the union drive in Alabama, um, I think as we speak, it's not in, not yet entirely clear what happened, but I think it's not looking great. Um, and that's it's just raw power, right? It's really really hard to be a, a group of 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 low income workers taking on the most powerful and richest you know man in the world. Um, and w- when they're throwing absolutely everything at you. So yeah, I am heartened by the tech worker movement. And I think that where it's been most promising from what I've seen is like where the fights are very place-based, right? So like something like the fight in New York against the Amazon headquarters, right? Or sidewalk in Toronto. Or, or sidewalk right. in Toronto, exactly. Yeah. Where it's like, you have this very powerful company that comes to a city and coalitions form that kind of throw everything at them, right? Like, you know, no tech for ice, you know, you know, you had, you had, you had migrant rights organizers saying, you know, this is what this company is doing and collaborating um, with this machine of deportation. You had anti-gentrification and housing rights activists. You had racial justice activists talking about bias in AI. And, and you had workers inside saying, you know, th- these are the conditions that we're working under. And so that is kind of similar, I guess, to some of the brand-based activism that I documented in, in no logo where it was just like people use these brands as kind of coalition builders right where it's like um this is this 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 thing has gotten so big that it's created our coalition for us right it's kind of death by a thousand cuts to a certain degree right yeah any one of those grievances wouldn't have had the movement behind it but together there's some power together there's some power and especially when you combine that with the kind of um the possibility to get information out of these companies that a that a government you know when you are trying to get into a city then the city has certain transparency laws and these companies don't want transparency right they want to be black boxes we know that about them right but city councils aren't allowed to be black boxes so they sign these agreements with these companies and then people are like wait a minute show us the books what is this company doing and that seems to be when they're like we're out of here like if if the cost of being in toronto is 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 actually having to be transparent that that's not worth it to us yeah um but i don't think we've seen the end of it you know i i've been following the si- the sidewalk lab um uh, you know, 
it's it, it's re it's reconfiguring itself like science fiction style um and 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 definitely sees the 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 fact that a lot of cities are, are dealing with massive financial crises um post pandemic you know post in quotes because of course we're not post um but eventually we'll be post and the public, our public transit systems are in profound crisis because people haven't been using them and they're afraid, of, you know, there's, there's all kinds of fears around public transit. Um, and small businesses have, have closed in huge numbers. And so cities have lost a lot of their revenue streams. And so I predict Sidewalk Labs is going to be coming in to the quote unquote rescue saying, you know, we'll privatize your city for you. Yeah. And combine that with um, their need for more data, for one, um, and their positioning of China as a competitor because it has an unhindered access to things like smart city data. I mean, that's you, you've read about Eric Schmidt's role in this, which I, I find continually shocking that here's someone with $5 billion of Google shares actively fighting against regulation of that company and for unhindered access to data sets of Americans. Yeah, and I, th I think it's just, it's another example of why we should be wary of um, this sort of positioning of China as the great, you know, new threat enemy, um, almost like Cold War style, mm. um, because this discourse really lends itself to like where we're being left behind. That's Eric Schmidt's whole pitch is like, um, first Google doesn't go into China because they don't want to be evil or they left China, um, you know, back in the day. Uh, and Google pulled out of China because it was having to collaborate with the censorship regime. Um, but also because different tech companies were being used to locate dissidents, right? Like yeah. I think Yahoo very, um, there was a there was a famous case where the they handed over the IP address of where somebody had posted something and they were immediately arrested and imprisoned. And so there was a wave of tech companies leaving China and just saying like we won't collaborate with the with 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 the censorship. We won't collaborate with the hunting down of dissidents. Mm. Um, and then they've just watched China's tech market grow and grow and grow. And they um, and they've watched the Chinese, their Chinese competitors grow and grow and grow um, because they weren't there. And now it's a very different tune that we're getting from Google. I mean, it's diametrically opposed. It's we are falling behind in this new tech cold war because China, our, our Chinese competitors are operating in a market that isn't burdened by civil liberties and any privacy concerns, and they're able to build their techs, their, their their smart cities. And look at these remarkable data sets they can build and yeah, leverage and yeah. Yeah, and so we, we and so this is a security concern for mm. for America that we are for the United States that we're falling behind in in Eric Schmidt's view. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's that's something that that progressives should be very very wary of because we're seeing more and more of this discourse. In 2007, Naomi published The Shock Doctrine about how Western powers have exploited crises in developing nations as an opportunity to introduce their own self-serving neoliberal agendas. Last year, Naomi wrote an article for The Intercept called A Screen New Deal, where she talked about how big tech is leveraging the pandemic 
for their own version of the shock doctrine. The other recent narrative coming from the tech companies is around the pandemic itself and the role they've played in our society and our economy over the past year. And do you see that as the a manifestation of the shock doctrine? Is this just disaster capitalism again? Or is something different going on here, given that we've all moved, been forced to be digital? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of two things going on, it seems to me, that them opportunistically engaging in this space, but also us jumping into it by necessity to a certain degree. By necessity to a certain degree, but I do want to say that there, I, I do believe that there were other options that we didn't explore because it was treated as such a given that schools should immediately go to, you know, Google Classroom and Zoom and that it should all be a, tech, a technological solution. Um, you know, we could have spent that money investing in outdoor education. Um, like I'm, Look, I struggled with my, <laughs> I'm really not very good with technology, and I really struggled up, uh, uploading my eight-year-old son's um, homework assignments, um, and definitely experienced that sort of faux automation or photomation, as my friend Astra <laughs> Taylor talks about, where it's like, wait a minute, this isn't remote learning. Like, it's just parents doing all this work on totally. one end, and teachers doing all the work <laughs> on the other end, and Google taking all the credit, you know? Um, there's a lot of labor uh, uh, going going into this, um, but but I did find myself wondering, like, would it be so impossible to just send textbooks to all of the parents, mm. to all the homes, and then we could like we could use pencils and like fill out these worksheets instead of like struggling with these terrible PDFs produced by teachers who equally were <laughs> didn't right, know right. how to size it properly and assuming right. that everybody had printers at home and. We could have had a textbook. It's a little bit low tech, you know, um, but but it's it's just we're just we just assumed the highest tech solutions, even in scenarios where it made absolutely no sense. Um, uh, but yeah, I think I think we what we saw was an acceleration where where a lot of this was sort of in the works. These companies already saw, for instance, if we're just talking about schools, they already saw education as a mm. major new market. They already mm. had divisions. They were already kind of creeping into the public school system. Well, and kids, right? Not just education, but education to get at data on children. Yeah, yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, and, and they saw the post-secondary market as well. And And I think that, you know, I think universities... I wish univer- I wish public universities had been better um, prepared with our own technologies, right? So, you know, if we are going to be using these platforms, then we have to be serious about developing public sector, commons-based uh, alternatives to these private platforms. I don't think we did do that. And so, you know, they moved very quickly. Yeah, Shock Doctrine style and just was like, this yeah. is an opening, let's pounce. And it's an also it was also an opening to... Um, deal with that tech lash that was that was really strong before the pandemic hit, right? And mm. this is something else Eric Schmidt, you know, said out loud that he shouldn't have, probably shouldn't have, right? Yeah. Which was like, oh, and you were you all hated us, but now we're keeping you alive. And I bet you like Amazon now that they're the ones bringing you your groceries. Um, and and so yeah, they definitely they saw it as a branding opportunity, a PR opportunity, and definitely mm-hmm. an opportunity to rebrand the frictionless lifestyle as mm-hmm. now pandemic safe, no touch, yeah. um, and uh, 
And my hope, once again, and, you know, this is where I find my, like, silver linings, but, you know, take it with a grain of salt, because I wrote a book called No Logo, you know, 20 years ago, and that hasn't turned out very... There's still some logos kicking around. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So my silver lining is this, we probably would have ended up in this place in 10 years, and instead, we got there in a matter of months in yeah. terms of the, the the amount of isolation, how much we're getting our entertainment from streaming as opposed to, to you know, public concerts and, 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 and gathering together and theater and all of these embodied experiences that I think are really important for, for our souls. Um, and, and, and so crashing into it, it's like the frog in boiling water, massively overused analogy, like I think we would have boiled slowly into this just ever, like we were already headed there. You know, we were already headed towards living our entire lives mediated by screens. Um, But, and we would have gotten entirely there probably by the end of the decade. And, and, and we probably would have boiled slowly. And now we, and I feel like we're jumping around. We're jumping around in this pot going, this is terrible. (laughs) Right. I mean, and, and, counterintuitively, that might have also turbocharged the governance movement in this space. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I think if we had spoiled slowly, it would be easier for governments to ignore this pro- these sets of problems. Yeah. But you're seeing movement in governments around the world now that would have been unimaginable two years ago in this yeah. space. But now there's like an urgency to it almost that may be as a result of us boiling as opposed to simmering. <laughs> yeah. And even, you know, my, like, I mean, my son hates Zoom. He now will not do a video call with anyone, which is mm. hard because his grandparents really want to see him. And, yeah. But he's just like, uh-uh, that's mm. school. <laughs> and 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 <laughs> and he's just like, he'll he'll talk on the phone, but he just will not do video calls. And I'm not fighting it because yeah, I just think this is it. a survival instinct. He somehow knows. Yeah. But I was one thing I was gonna say when we first now, I've been teaching undergraduates at Rutgers now for three semesters on Zoom, mm. right? As as I think probably we all have, right? Yeah. Um, so the first semester, um, we, you know, they went home for March break and they never came back, right? So mm. I had a group that we had been learning to, in person and then we went online uh, coming back. Yeah. And then I've had two semesters that have been wholly online since then. Mm. And I'll never forget what one of my students said to me. Um, we did a check-in after March break. Suddenly we're in these little boxes, you mm. know, and um, and they were so sad. You know, they missed each other so much. Mm. Um, they just felt like their whole university experience had just been yanked from underneath them. Um, and and this one of my students said, the thing that I found scariest was that when they announced the lockdown, I didn't need to change all that much about my life. Hmm. And that's really scary, you know? It was already so virtual and digital that it was seamless. Yeah. 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 And, and that was a wake up call for her, you know? Um, Mm. And I, I think, I hope that more, more people are having those, those wake up calls. I hope people go just, wild this summer <laughs> and not in a bad way not in a pandemic you know but just in a kind of we can gather outside and we can be in nature and and we and see just value like, of human connection you know in a way let's leave our phones home way. you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so i mean the last thing i want to talk to you about and and it's obviously a big one but is 
your work transitioned to making climate the kind of central defining issue through which we see a whole host of other challenges. Um, and it seems to me like many aspects of the both literal climate crisis in terms of emissions, but also the governance challenge of how we as a society come to some sort of collective understanding and decision-making path around climate change are deeply intertwined with our communication technologies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one of the ways that it feels most visceral to me is um, just the way in which we understand the world and the problem being increasingly fragmented and our inability to come to real collective understandings of things. Mm-hmm. Juxtaposed with the real organizing potential and collective action potential of those very same technologies. Yeah. And I'm yeah. wondering how you think about maybe just social media to start and these real tensions here between fragmentation of our understandings of the world and the need to mobilize in a common direction. Yeah. I mean, and th- this is why I think that we need to make the argument for making good on the original promise of these technologies, which was a virtual town square, which mm. was, you know, uh, a virtual library of, of, of human knowledge. Um, mm. Those were good ideas. They didn't have a business model. Um, and when things don't have a business model, but are good ideas, we say they're public goods. <laughs> um, and so I, I think it's amazing that the youth climate movement um, has been able to build itself online in just a remarkable way. I mean, here, just thinking about like the, 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 the Fridays for Future movement, the fact that you have teenagers around the world um, who are building a common movement, walking out of school together every Friday, um, you know, if they have in person, um, or even if they're not in person, they're finding ways mm. to strike. Um, but also, it's not just the strikes. I mean, they have regular video conferencing and have gotten to know each other and have mm. real friendships and relationships. I mean, this is one of the things I found really moving. I covered um, the case of Disha Ravi in India, um, who's a 22-year-old climate activist who has um, brought Fridays for Future to India and supported the farmers' movement in India, the huge farmers' movement opposing Modi's neoliberal uh, agricultural reforms. And when they activated the network of this, of this incredible network of global um, uh, climate activists and Greta Thunberg, who now has, I don't know how many million followers on Twitter, yeah. tweeted um, support for the farmers and, and, and a, a toolkit of like how to support basically a bunch of hashtags. This was so threatening to Modi, the Modi government that mm. they arrested um, Disha Ravi and are investigating two other young climate activists for, you know, the toolkit conspiracy, the toolkit case, right? There is no conspiracy. It's just like a bunch, you know, it's a, it's the most benign, you know, clicktivist hashtag campaign, but it's powerful. It's powerful because Absolutely. this is a powerful movement and it's millions yeah. of people and it's threatening enough to, 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 for, for the Modi government to see it as um, a genuine challenge to these economic, uh, uh, these farming laws that he wants to get passed. So I believe, you know, that, that like, I think that that shows all of the threats and, and, and possibilities, like amazing global networking, building a real embodied movement, as well as using these tools, um, you know, as a, as a substitute for air travel, right? Um, you know, these young people have 
they call each other sisters, you know, like when Disha was arrested, there was just this incredible outpouring of love. And you realize actually these young people have never met and they have oh. real relationships. And that's meaningful. And it's really meaningful. It's really meaningful. Um, and, and these young people are also facing just unbelievable amounts of both surveillance, right. And state repression where you see, um, well, first of all, like the Modi government was, was demanding access to the Google document that produced this toolkit, um, asked, t- demanding that Zoom hand over the names of everybody who participated in private meetings um, about the toolkit. Um, the police were leaking all of these private communications to the media. Um, then they tried to pass a new digital um, uh, media law that would require companies to hand over all of this information, including backdoors to um, to apps like like WhatsApp. Yeah. Um, and also, so you've got the state surveillance, and you have just unbelievable levels of of harassment and threats and misogyny um, that that Greta was facing, that Disha Ravi was facing, tipping into real world violence. You know, there were, there were protests, um, in India where people were burning, you know, Gre- pictures of Greta, um, mm-hmm. pictures of Rihanna, who also tweeted. Um, so you see it all, you see the possibility and you see this in India, but it's not only in India where you have a, a state that is simultaneously allowing, not allowing, I mean, Modi has a, a a troll army. He is he is empowering, planning, um, mm. using the full power of these tech companies to um, to harass people and to suppress certain kinds of speech. Yeah, so you see the possibility, and you also see just the incredible cost mm. of the current structure, right? Yeah. So speaking of kids, I, I have a son the same age as yours, I think, um, just about to turn eight. And uh, we've actually been reading your book, How to Change Everything, together. I hope you skipped over some of the scarier parts. Well, that, that's what I was going to ask you about, <laughs> yeah. actually, because it's scarier than I expected it to be. Mm-hmm. Or it's not scarier. It's franker than I expected it to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, I, and I don't know if that's if targeted at a slightly older age. Um, it probably is to yeah, a certain degree. <laughs> um, but I'm, I was struck by the frankness. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I was wondering if how you feel about how these things should be explained to kids, and how you talk to your son about technology, because mm. that's something I really struggle with too. Yeah. I mean, I'm deeply embedded in these conversations, and yet he loves YouTube for some very specific things, mm. and I don't know how to talk about this in a mm. appropriate way. And I think parents all over the world are faced with that right now. Yeah. yeah. How do you talk about these tools that seem innocuous to kids. Yeah. I don't know that I'm, I mean, well, first of all, on the climate stuff. Um, yeah. The book is, is for sort of 10 and up, but even a 10 year old, I would say it's better to read it with them. Um, I do feel that, you know, for eight, nine year olds, like they, they do know that that climate change is happening and, you know, maybe they watch a David Attenborough documentary and it's all, yeah. seems really good at the beginning and then at the end it's like oh and this incredible ecosystem we've been showing you is you know imperiled and these the, these amazing animals are are on the verge of extinction because of this thing called climate change so they do they do need to know um what's happening but i try i tried to put it off for as long as i could because i do feel that um there's a risk 
where the um, kind of uh, some of the first things that young people are learning about nature are all about threat and danger. And, and I think that you, you protect what you love. Um, And, and, and the, the, the more that we can ground our kids in a healthy relationship with the natural world. And, and, and it's not hard. Kids love nature. It's not like this really tough thing you need to embed, instill in them. Um, but, you know, the more opportunities that 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 kids can have um, to be in nature and to have positive experiences, the more, the better environmentalists they'll be, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I put I put off the scary stuff for as long as possible. And, and, um, and be, precisely because my son is so connected to nature and when i've when i have failed to protect him and he's been exposed to something really frightening it's just devastating for him you know yeah i've had the same experience it's it's so close to them personally yeah 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 the language is visceral yeah so um um but the technology piece but but i do feel that as they get older and this is something that i think you know part of the reason i did the book was inspired by by greta where you know, hearing her story of how she um, went into this state of terrible despair at age 11, in part because she learned about climate change through documentaries and books, and she didn't see anybody doing anything about it, right? Um, that it And it wasn't until really she became part of a movement that she felt better or started to feel better. I mean, she obviously... Um, is, is still very angry and has a right to be. All young people, everyone does. Um, but, but I think collective action is an antidote to that despair. Um, and so, you know, I wish we had protected all kids <laughs> from not from, from 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 having to know this because it was. I wish it wasn't happening. But we didn't protect them, and and because we didn't protect them. I think it's our duty to empower them as historical actors. And, 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 you know, what I do in the book, as you know, is just share as many stories as, as possible, as early as possible in the book of young people, uh, you know, being empowered. Yeah. Being empowered and having huge impacts and doing amazing things. Um, and really thread that throughout, not kind of have just like one chapter at the end that's like, and here's a few things you can do. Right. Because I think by then you're just so far in the, in the pit of despair, you can't get out. Um, so yeah, but with technology, um, it's, it's look. I mean, I don't know if you, if you know any parents who have gotten through the pandemic without, uh, breaking every single tech rule. No, but this is what makes it so visceral is everybody's doing all the things they swore they were not going to do for. Yeah. And I mean, my son has very specific. YouTube obsessions. Um, yeah, mine too. Origami yeah. is my kids. Origami. One. Origami and magic tricks, <laughs> card tricks. He goes. He's yeah. deep in the rabbit hole of of uh, both subcultures of YouTube. So my kid is obsessed with electric guitar um, tutorials. Not playing it, but 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 upgrading electric guitar. <laughs> <laughs> like pickups and yeah. and things like that where you like um he has this one guy who he's just completely obsessed with and he starts like vibrating when he knows that he's going to be dropping a new video well it's given me a lot of uh, a lot of sympathy for these influencers where you know they talk yeah. about that about how they feel like machines they have to feed the algorithm you know and they have to post at a certain time yeah, they're feeding your son is Dude. what they're doing yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's so intense it's like if Daryl takes a week off 
It's oh my just God. a huge incident. I have the same house. thing with this <laughs> random guy who does origami tutorials in the Midwest. And this guy is, he does not know the influence he has in our household. <laughs> but I must say, I think it's kind of amazing. Like, yeah. we just watched crappy superhero cartoons. Um, and this has made him want to actually do incredible things. Like my my eight-year-old son now knows how to solder, thanks to Daryl. <laughs> so <laughs> I think um I'm not sure. I, I'm think I might think it's great. <laughs> um I think it's actually kind of great. And you know, we've managed to get get the ads off and even though that means giving money to Google. So there I am. No one's perfect, sorry. <laughs> On that mode of despair and optimism. Um, yes. Thanks so much for this conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Me too. Thank you. Yeah. Take care. Right. Great to you reconnect. Too. Yeah, right. you too. Bye. <laughs> that was my conversation with Naomi Klein. As always, I'd love to hear from you. How do you talk to your kids about technology? And what do you think about Naomi Klein's view of big tech and its role in our lives? Drop me a line anytime at taylor at bigtechpodcast.com. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation and produced by Antica Productions. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every other week. <laughs>